Erosion, Chapter 2 hey! There is no death, only a change of worlds, Chief Seattle. Hey! Hey! The rain sounded like corn popping. Rivlets veined the land, and soon the water would roll over and give Gary's farm a good old-fashioned biblical flooding. A heavy scent from the soaking world hung in the air. It was over the ground and in the wood beams of his house. The dog smelled of it all the time. He sometimes felt like he'd get used to it. But then one of them came into a room dragging that musty smell and he had to kick the mud out. It was all too depressing for Gary as he stood on the edge of his porch, letting the spray of rain wet his face and dampen his wool coat. The hot coffee warmed his palms as he cradled the cup just under his chin. The smell of liquor emitting through the white steam was stronger than usual. Inside the house, the TV blared on. A repeat of the Oprah Winfrey show played. He had lost interest in it when she brought out that Dr. Phil once again. He didn't care about the show. All day he thought about his wife, Carol, living miles away in a tiny trailer, crammed in with her brother, his wife, and two kids down in Florida. Not that Canyon Park was much better. He watched his fields, normally golden with budding stalks of grain, mashed into a miserable rack of mud and silt. Erosion flattened out the potency of the once-bulging hills. The soil, once blessed with minerals, was now barren and defeated. He dumped the remaining coffee, set the cup on the edge of the rail, and twiddled with the keys to his truck while deciding whether to go into town when he spotted a patrol car driving up the flooded road to his farmhouse. His stomach churned. What's this about, he thought. The car pulled up to the front of the farmhouse. He walked down into the rain to meet the officer. Out of the car popped Jerry Fallon. They had gone to school together and neither had ever made it out of Canyon Park. He never liked me, Gary thought. None of them liked me because I'm Anyotaka. Hey, Gary, Jerry said, squinting against the raindrops. How's it going? He didn't like his casual white man attitude. Fine, he said, shielding his eyes from the rain. Good, good, don't let on. Play cool, Gary, play cool. You're one of the good ones. He's just some white fool. He doesn't know what you've been through. He's just stupid, that's all. He's one of the boys in high school who made fun of me, he thought. I need to spill his blood for the turtle. You can't let your anger get the best of you. You need to control it and focus. Is this man the one God spoke to you about? No. Let's talk about this after the show, honey. The water's getting pretty high over there by Covered Bridge Road, Jerry said. Have you seen how high the White River's getting? I've seen it. Jerry seemed agitated. If the river gets much higher, the bridge will wash out and you'll be stuck out here. I don't think that'll be a problem. I have supplies, Gary said. Well, no one knows how long this rain will last. Jerry stepped away from his car, moving towards Gary. If it comes down to it, we're going to evacuate everyone to the high school. Gary nodded to him. He folded his arms and looked into Jerry's eyes. His eyes were just as strong as they were years ago. They also seemed just as hateful. Gary saw the hate, the torture, and the wounds to his Oneida soul in the eyes of people like Jerry. You seen anything strange around here in the last few days? Jerry approached faster. Like a wanderer? You know, a hired hand you didn't recognize? 
The remark made Gary drop his pose and step back. His mind is not filled with your story. The voice was low, throaty, and from somewhere deep inside him. Pesky mosquitoes will come forth from the remains of his body. If his spirit leaves by your hand, more little white men will come from his blood to sting you. That gave him strength. He would treat Jerry with care, like a hungry animal looking for food. Throw some scraps of hide his way. He shook his head and said, No. How's the wife, Gary? How's Carol? Any little engines in the making yet? Gary balled his fists. The keys in his hand made indents into the muscles of his thumb. Mosquitoes. She went to visit her brother in Florida, Gary said. Down south, huh? Yes. How long, Jerry asked. I do not know, Gary replied. Jerry stepped back towards his car. I see. Well, keep an eye out for weird people, wild engines and the like, know what I mean? I haven't seen anyone, Gary said. I'll keep a lookout. I'll be wary of strangers. Good, Jerry said. Keep a radio tuned to WCAN, too. But I guess that doesn't matter to you, because you'll just live off the land if it comes to it, right? He indicated the muddy fields. You guys can make it rain. Why don't you stop it with your friends over there? Again, he pointed to Gary's fields, but for a different reason. The river ran past Gary's farm to the west, and the other side was the Oneida Reservation. It was one of the reasons he and Carol had bought the land from Rich Grayson all those years ago. I was just on my way into town to get a few supplies, just in case. He ignored the comment about the Oneida. Gary felt like he had been living in two worlds for years. One of the white men of Canyon Park and the other of his family heritage, the United Nation of the Iroquois Confederacy. I'll keep my radio on, but I'll be all right. There was no way he was going to be taken from his farmhouse unless they came with shotguns. It could get pretty ugly if the rain gets worse. I'd be careful. Just letting you know, he said. Then the fakeness returned to his voice. Take care now, Gary. Liar. He wants me to die out here. Relax, just be cool, the soothing voice said. Get in your truck. Thanks, Gary said, not meaning it. He felt Jerry's eyes as he got into his truck and started it up. The patrol car followed him to the end of the road, and they went in opposite directions. His life is not for taking away to the sky. No doubt Jerry had other farmers to warn. Gary continued up to County Road 39, which turned into Covered Bridge Road. Bad spirit will be mad at me for this, Gary said aloud. You did fine, she whispered. He feared the bared spirit more than anything. His truck rattled as he's made his way down the bumpy country road. He drove straight. Country road 39 made very little in the way of turns, and the shoulders were wide so he didn't worry about veering off accidentally. Some of the farmhouses sat close to the road, just off the path. Others receded into the distance, full muddy fields extending out in front. All of them looked the same, defeated and barren. No farmer would reap any crops that season. Even if the rain stopped tomorrow, it was already too late. The farmers were ruined. The Latimer farms, beaten wooden planks and weathered pitched roof encroached by high weaves showed its disuse. Years ago, Mort died of a stroke, whacking grain by hand and his family slowly dispersed, his children being older and on to paths that led away from the generations of farming that the Latimers had done in Canyon Park. Gary almost bought that farm from the bank that still held the note, but the memories were too dark for him to bear. They were Indian boarding schools. That's what they were called by everyone, 
that they should have been called Indian furnaces because they cooked the native culture from the children and formed Christian workers for the Lalo Company. One summer, when he should have been going home with his sister, Grace, to see his parents, instead they were sent to the Latimers to work. Later on, when the schools were forced closed, he found out that the Latimers leased them for the work they did, paying the school for their services while they slaved for measly meals and daily beatings by Latimer's fists. When he'd come back from the field, sweaty and filthy, from working a white man's crop, his only solace was his sister's face. He was gladdened to know that her service in the house, while still harsh, went mostly without abuse. Gary kept his mouth closed. This was payment for his education in the boarding school, he thought. That was what he told Grace as they lay in the barn at night with the horses braying in the heat, the sound of the household drifting out to them like invisible fingers squeezing their hearts. They'd hear the Latimer boys playing radios, listening to their music stations while their friends and girlfriends squealed and yelled and laughed. Cars would race down County Road 39, beeping at the crowd of kids as they went by, friends going out to see movies and hang out. Gary heard all about what they did with their summer nights the next day in the fields. Too bad you were redskin, Gary, they yelled from the tractors and trucks. You could show us your little powwow dances, they'd laugh. Some were not mean like the Latimers. There were some workers who were like Gary. There were Indians from other clans, other nations. They'd tell him about the Mohawks in the West. Algonquins from the north, Seminoles from Florida, and the Hopi from the desert. He even learned how most people of his own clan, the Oneidas, still part of the Haudenosaunee, the proud Six Nations, moved to Green Bay in Wisconsin. He never knew that there was a larger tribe or reservation than his own. All he knew of Indians was that they were backward and needed to be converted if they were to be saved. That was what they taught in the boarding schools. That was all he knew since he was five or six years old. He rarely saw his parents. Sometimes it was hard to remember them. On the occasion that he did, they looked strange to him, not like the pale-faced nuns and priests who ran his school. He remembered thinking that they looked stupid and depressed, just like the characters in the books he read in class. He also remembered that he never wanted to be like them. The things that they taught him in school, he'd never learn on a reservation judging by the natives he'd met on the outside. Those who spoke strange languages to each other and who migrated all over the land to work with their hands, never having a home or a place for themselves. That's what they were called, migrant workers, because they migrated America looking for work. When he lay in the barn at night, looking up at the stars, in that sky he did not see the Great Spirit and his sky ghosts who once became men to populate the world. He saw dots against black, little beacons in the sky. There was nothing magical about it. We'll graduate from school and I'll buy a farm just like this one, he'd tell Grace. I'll have you cook for me when I come out of the fields just like Mr. Latimer. She'd snuggle in close to his body, not minding that he was sweaty or dirty or smelly from not being allowed to shower for days at a time. She felt his strength. She believed in his words, like he were reciting the scripture. No, he'd never become a stupid migrant worker. He'd never go to the factories like his stupid parents and have his children and his sister taken away. He'd make money and buy a farm and work his own crops. Didn't you do that, Gary? You see, you did not fail. I did, he thought. I did fail, though. She was too far away to be saved. You can't blame yourself for her death anymore. It's what eats you alive. She loved you in the end. You must know what that meant to her. Well, you love her. 
Rain sputtered on the windshield, making it impossible to see where the bridge began and the road ended. He tried to keep his big hand still as he entered the maw of the covered bridge that gave the road its name. The stillness was almost as strong of a sensation as the darkness. He clicked on the headlights and enjoyed the serenity of dark calm. Until then, he hadn't realized how the constant hiss and chatter of raindrops was making him feel anxious, distracted, and jumpy. He slowed the car to a stop and pushed the gear into park. It was so relaxing he could almost fall asleep. Wouldn't be so bad either, since there was no one else on the road. The covered bridge protected him from all the evil in the world. It was as if all the voices were talking at once when the rain hit the ground. The hiss was the talk of the bad spirit tempting him to do evil, but he knew what to do when the devil whispered in your ear. You cut out its tongue. It felt like the beginning of the world, before the turtle came down to the waters and lifted the little mud patch up from the depths. He felt the peace of absolute symmetry. He felt the car's seat against him, but in his mind he saw no direction or time, no up or down, no left from right, no backward or forward, no past or future. He dropped the shifter back into drive and rolled the car out of the covering and safety of the bridge into the electric world of rain. Canyon Park was being washed of sin. Thirty-four days of constant rain and no end in sight. The volley attacked the windshield with what seemed to be vengeance. It was punishment for being away so long, hiding under the bridge. It sounded louder on the metal roof and frightened him just a bit. I'm glad you're back, Gary. I missed you. Don't leave me again, please. Her voice mixed with the rain. It was hard to tell his thoughts apart from hers anymore. His black queen tempted him slowly. Was it love? Or was it more that she offered? He needed her there with him now. All the time there sitting in the folds of his brain, embracing his every neuron, every pulse. He managed to find the square that made for a downtown in Canyon Park, surrounded on all sides by First Street, Main Street, Garden Boulevard, and the only concession to the original roots of the land, Onondaga Street, recently renamed by a very narrow margin of votes from Red Street, another concession to the roots of the town, if not the nation. He put the car close to the post office, which, true to its creed, remained open through the storms despite having outlasted its neighbors, the second-hand store to the right and the beauty parlor on the left. Both seemed insignificant as he watched a few women duck under an awning, withered and wilted. What use would a beauty parlor be if the minute you stepped outside there wasn't a hat big enough anymore to shield you from the water? Gary! Gary, how are you? A voice came from out of the rain. It was so close that Gary thought immediately to run from it. Gary, it's me, Daniel. Gary saw the man standing before him. It was Daniel Smallpaw. The United name was for his small footsteps when he was a child. Gary, I'm sorry about Carol. I heard from some of the others in the nation. I wish you'd join us over there. We have so much going on. You'd be so busy. You can get your mind off your problems. Maybe, Gary said. It was all he could think to say. Come down this week. With the rain, we've been inside the houses just talking things over about the case. Gary nodded silently. He noticed Daniel's big briefcase was getting wet despite his umbrella. Daniel lifted the briefcase, noticing his attention. Speaking of that, I'm on my way to see their lawyer, Mr. Khan. We've been negotiating on the land treaties. We might have a shot at getting parcels of land back. Unused parcels, but this is big. Next we'll be charging them rent, right? That would be good. I have to go now. I have mail. Come down to the longhouse tomorrow night, Gary. See what it's about. We can use the help. I'll try. 
Gary walked past Daniel's leaving Smallpaw shaking his head in the rain. The floor inside the post office was damp and black with mud. The industrial strength floor mat was soaked. Gary sloshed across it like Jesus across the waters. He opened his post office box and flipped through his mail. Mostly it was bills that he flashed past quickly. One gave him pause. It was another letter from the bank saying his mortgage was past due. Then there was another of those meticulously decorated envelopes he'd been getting. Rendered angels flew across the back of the envelope into ballpoint pen fires of hell. A large cross, shaded with precise lines, adorned the bottom left corner. The cross radiated the glory of God with little doves. The shadow of the cross darkened his address. Only a bubble revealed to the mailman where to deliver the letter. The idea of someone scratching out his name with a black pen gave him chill through his wet clothes. Somewhere behind that handwriting was a person who wanted him dead. He tore open the top and unfolded the page. The letter was written in an eerily familiar handwriting. It said nearly the same thing every time. Gary, stop invading my mind with your technology. I see your story in my head. I don't like it. I know what you're trying to do to me. Stop trying to force my body to your direction with tasteless food. I know that you are lonely, but I am not your mouthpiece to God. Since 1953, you have been using your technology to look in my mind. I find that if I think of mosquitoes, it helps block you, but I cannot always do that. Sincerely, Oprah Winfrey. He couldn't understand why she sometimes spoke to him, yet at others she drafted long letters for him to stay away. He crumpled the paper and threw it in the trash by the door as he left, along with the rest of his mail. It's not me, Gary, it's not me. It's the bad spirit trying to trick you. You can see he doesn't understand. I don't want you to go away. He never took the letters with him and never read them at home. He watched her on TV every day. He studied her face, her actions, and her voice. He often wondered what it would be like to make love to her. Sometimes, out of the corner of her eye, she would look right at him through the glass of the screen. She spanned miles to be with him. It's almost time for Mike's show. Get me home or they'll suspect something's wrong. Once, she even mentioned his name. She was speaking to a guest, and when she said the word, she looked right at him with her narrow eyes and smiled. When she did that, he knew. He knew she was his good spirit, come to comfort him. He got back into his pickup. He had no radio, and no one to talk to since Carol left. Just a constant rain and Oprah whispering in his ear. Take me back to Watasatala. by Lon S. Cohen. To find out more, please visit www.coenside.blogspot.com. This patio book is a production of Zilco Studios. <laughs> this production is a production. <laughs>